Numbers 22, starting at the first verse. Then the Israelites travelled to the plains of Moab and camped along the Jordan across from Jericho. Now Balak, son of Zippor, saw that all that Israel had done to the Amorites and Moab and was terrified because there were so many people. Indeed, Moab was filled with dread because of the Israelites. The Moabites said to the elders of Midian, This horde is going to lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, king of Zippor, who was the king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to summon Balaam, son of Beor, who was at Pethor, near the Euphrates River, in his native land. Balak said, A people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the land and have settled next to me. Now come and put a curse on these people, because they are too powerful for me. Perhaps then I will be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that whoever you bless is blessed, and whoever you curse is cursed. I'm going to jump over to the next chapter and continue reading from verse 13. Then Balak said to him, Come with me to another place where you can see them. You will not see them all, but only the outskirts of their camp. And from there, curse them for me. So he took them to the field of Zophim, on the top of Pisgah, and there he built seven altars and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Balaam said to Balak, Stay here beside your offering while I meet with him over there. The Lord met with Balaam and put a word in his mouth and said to him, Go to Balak and give him this word. So he went to him and found him standing beside his offering with the Moabite officials. Balak asked him, What did the Lord say? Then he spoke this message. Arise, Balak, and listen. Hear me, son of Zippor. God is not a human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? I have received a command to bless, and he has blessed, and I cannot change it. No misfortune is seen in Jacob, no misery observed in Israel. The Lord their God is with them. The shout of the king is among them. God brought them out of Egypt. They have the strength of a wild ox. There is no divination against Jacob, no evil omens against Israel. It will now be said of Jacob and of Israel, see what God has done. The people rise like a lioness. They rouse themselves like a lion that does not rest until it devours its prey and drinks the blood of its victims. Then Balak said to Balaam, neither curse them at all nor bless them at all. Balaam answered, did I not tell you that I must do whatever the Lord says? Then Balak said to Balaam, come, let me take you to another place. Perhaps it will please God to let you curse them for me from there. And Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor, overlooking the wasteland. Balaam said, build me seven altars here and prepare seven bulls and seven rams for me. Balak did as Balaam had said and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Now when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not resort to divination as at other times, but turned his face toward the wilderness. Then Balaam looked out and saw Israel encamped tribe by tribe, and the Spirit of God came on him, and he spoke this message. The prophecy of Balaam, son of Beor, the prophecy of one of those whose eyes sees clearly, the prophecy of one who hears the words of God, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate and whose eyes are opened. How beautiful are your tents, Jacob, your dwelling places, Israel. 
Like valleys, they spread out, like gardens beside a river, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside water. Water will flow from their buckets, their seed will have abundant water. Their king will be greater than Agag, their kingdom will be exalted. God brought them out of Egypt, they have the strength of a wild ox. They devour hostile nations and break their bones in pieces. With their arrows, they pierce them. Like a lion, they crouch and lie down. Like a lioness, who dares rouse them? May those who bless you be blessed, and those who curse you be cursed. Ben's going to come now and preach to us. Thanks for reading, Kate, and great to be with you all this morning. Um, let me say it was great um, being at the school on Tuesday for the morning tea and uh, lovely that the principal, Peter, came out at one point and interrupted all the conversations the staff were having and uh, introduced me, said, you know, Ben's here from uh, Barney's down the road and he said, we're so grateful for the partnership that we have as a school uh, with that church for the support that we receive um, from them and everyone gave a, a round of applause. But um, it, it really struck me... Um, this week that our support of them is really genuinely appreciated. And I think um, they're more receptive to our support than, than the school used to be in the past. Um, one of the ways that we're wanting to grow that, um, that support for the school is we've offered to, uh, to go into the school on a Saturday morning and do a working bee. And they are keen for that to happen and are getting back to us as to what dates is going to work best. So it'll be either the 5th or the 12th of November. So Saturday morning, uh, 5th or 12th of November. Uh, we'll let you know when they confirm. Um, Johnny prayed for the Mary Mags dinners, and we heard from Jeremy and Liv um, Heyman on Wednesday night at the mission workshop. I'm going to send an email, try and get onto that this afternoon or in the next couple of days, just uh, for those who weren't there to fill you in on what was shared and the options uh, for us as a church in seeking to get involved uh, in that ministry. It was a great time, uh, really good to hear from them and exciting to think how we could um, step into that ministry with them. Uh, it is going to be really helpful to have your Bibles uh, open, uh, whether that's on your phone or a hard copy. As um, Kate said, we're covering a few chapters in Numbers. Uh, let me pray for God's help as we get started. Father, we thank you uh, for your words, and we pray as we look at this uh, funny and uh, bizarre story uh, that you would speak your words into our lives, that you'd give us hearts that are receptive to hear the truth of what you have for us this morning, uh, to take it and to live in the light of it. For Jesus' sake, amen. I wonder, have you ever got to the point uh, where you've just had enough? Uh, the hits just keep coming, the bad news just keeps arriving one after another, and you just need some relief. Uh, well, reading the first 21 chapters of Numbers is a bit like that. Uh, as we've seen, the first 10 chapters are really the setup. Uh, God giving his people instructions on how they're to live with him at the center as they travel through the wilderness to the promised land. But then once they actually get moving in verse, uh, chapter 11, right through to chapter 21, it's kind of relentlessly discouraging, isn't it? There's grumbling and rebellion, failure again and again. And you get to chapter 22 and you just love something, anything positive. 
And in the kindness of God, that's what we get in chapters 22 to 24. These chapters are weird, but they're not just weird. They're also very wonderful. They're full of encouragement for God's weary people. Uh, Let me set the scene for you uh, from the beginning of uh, chapter 22. Israel are camped, we're told, on the plains of Moab. I've got a a map for you so you can see. Uh, So the red line tracks their journey from Kadesh Barnea, and they go round, um, they skirt the land of Edom, and then they come into, it says they're Cheshbon, uh, in our Bibles, Heshbon and Bashan. We heard last week how they defeated the king of Heshbon, Sion, and Og, the king of Bashan. And then they've come back, and they're just on the east of the Jordan River there, camped along the, the Jordan opposite Jericho. And they're kind of on the border of the land of Moab. Uh, and this is where they're going to remain for the rest of Numbers and all of Deuteronomy. Uh, Balak is the king of Moab, where they've just arrived, and he's heard how the Israelites have just defeated the Amorites, Sion and Og, and it was the Amorites who recently defeated the Moabites. So he, the king of Moab, is understandably uh, pretty terrified. He appeals to the neighboring people of Midian, verse 4. He says, this horde is going to lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. I wonder if you've ever watched a cow eating grass, like wrapping its tongue around the grass and kind of hoovering it up. And uh, Balak's saying, look, um, that's what Israel's going to do to us if we're not careful. We're about to be slobbered on by Israel. Uh, Now, next slide, I've got a a picture of maybe this is a kind of scared, angry King Balak. And and what does he do? He sends for Balaam. Next slide. Here's Balaam, because Balaam was a bit of a a witch doctor, really. He was the most revered pagan prophet in the region. Balak sent messengers over 600 kilometers to go and secure Balaam's services. Balaam's speciality was pronouncing blessings and curses, and it seems he was very effective. So verse 6 of chapter 22, Balak says, Now come and put a curse on these people because they're too powerful for me. Perhaps then I'll be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that whoever you bless is blessed, and whoever you curse is cursed. If you're cursed by Balaam, you're in big trouble. So can you see here, we're being taken kind of backstage, behind enemy lines, to hear what God's enemies think of God's people and how they plan to deal with them. Throughout these three chapters, Israel does nothing. They're just camped out there on the plains of Moab. As far as we know, they are totally oblivious to what's going on behind the scenes. And what we learn through these chapters is that God is utterly committed to blessing his people. God is utterly committed to blessing his people. That behind the scenes, God is working to protect his people, to ensure that their enemies are thwarted in their plan to do Israel harm. God is utterly committed to blessing his people. It is impossible to stop God from blessing his people. 
So we're going to race through chapter 22, enjoy some of the humor and delicious irony that there is in the story here, and then we'll spend some time in chapters 23 and 24 seeing what we can learn from Balaam's uh, prophetic messages. Now, when you read these chapters, it's not immediately obvious what to make of Balaam. Like, whose side is he on? Uh, There are kind of evidence on, on both sides. But the way the rest of the Bible refers to Balaam makes it very clear. His main motivation was his own selfish gain. And so when Balaam says in verse 18 of chapter 22, even if Balak gave me all the silver and gold in his palace, I couldn't do anything beyond the command of the Lord. It's probably not as virtuous as it sounds. He's probably saying something more like, look, no promises, but the more that you're able to give, the better your chances of success. So when the first delegation comes from Balak, God says, verse 12, do not go with them. You must not curse these people because they are blessed. Now, Balak is not used to having his requests denied, so he sends a bigger, better delegation and says, verse 16, look, don't let anything keep you from coming to me because I will reward you handsomely. Just come and curse these people. Second time, God says to Balaam, okay, go back with them, but only do what I say. So the next morning, Balaam gets on his donkey And then we're told, verse 22, that God was very angry and sends an angel to block his path, which is a bit confusing because God just said, go. But I think the simplest explanation here is that although it looks like Balaam's doing what God is telling him to do, he's really intending to do whatever it takes to secure the highest fee, cursing included. So God sends an angel, and we've got another picture, and uh, Balaam changes in this next picture Um, but there he is with his donkey and God sends an angel to block Balaam's path and this is kind of the irony part of it that Balaam the all-seeing oracle can't see this angel of the Lord but the donkey can and three times the donkey refuses to go forward and three times Balaam beats his donkey and then God opens the mouth of the donkey because he can and, uh, and the donkey asks Balaam, look, what have I done wrong? And Balaam says, you've made a fool of me, and if I had a sword, I'd kill you right now. Now, there is someone with a sword, but it's not the donkey who's in danger. The donkey says, look, let me ask you a question. Am I in the habit of treating you like this? And Balaam says, uh, well, no. And then God opens Balaam's eyes to see the angel who says, I've come to oppose you because your way is perilous. Your way is reckless. And I think we're to understand it's not perilous because he's going to see Balak. It's perilous because he's going intending to do whatever is demanded of him, including cursing God's people. And so Balaam says, okay, okay, I'll turn back. And the angel says, no, Balaam, you can go but only do what I say, only speak what I give you. It's all pretty embarrassing for the powerful witch doctor, this international man of sorcery is bested by a donkey. 
And then what follows is really a repeat of the donkey story. But this time, it's Balak who three times tries to press ahead, tries to get Balaam to curse God's people. And three times, Balaam, like the donkey, refuses to go along that path and three times comes back instead with a message of blessing. And then he adds a fourth message, just for good measure, and then three more short messages to round it off. You can see all that in the NIV headings in chapter 23 and 24. Seven messages in all, four major ones, which we're going to dip into three short ones. And there's a beautiful bit in 23:25. After the second attempt to curse Israel fails, and Balaam's come back with another message of blessing, and Balak says, look, if you're not going to curse them, don't say anything at all. It's a bit like what I say to my kids sometimes. If you can't say anything kind to each other, don't say anything at all. But um, Balak's got it in reverse. If you can't curse them, shut up. You keep blessing them. That's not what I hired you for. But Balaam has learned the lesson of the donkey. He cannot act against the Lord's purposes. He cannot curse those whom God has blessed. So what can we learn from Balaam's oracles? Three related points. God is utterly faithful to richly bless his people through his conquering king. And they get shorter as we go through. Firstly, God is utterly faithful. After sacrificing seven rams and seven bulls, Balaam goes off to practice his divination. And 23 verse 5, we're told God put a word in Balaam's mouth. He speaks, uh, verse 7, Balak brought me from Aram, the king of Moab, from the eastern mountains. Come, he said, curse Jacob for me. Come, denounce Israel. Verse 8, how can I curse those whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce those whom the Lord has not denounced? From the rocky peaks I see them, from the heights I view them. I see a people who live apart and do not consider themselves one of the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number even a fourth of Israel? Balaam sees that God has created a people to whom he is utterly committed. God has kept his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them numerous descendants and make them a great nation. They are a people set apart by God and for God, not counting themselves among the nations. Balaam finishes this first message by praying that he might be blessed like one of God's people. He says, verse 9, let me die, or verse 10, let me die the death of the righteous and may my final end be like theirs. Balaam realizes, I think, that he's dealing with something he's never dealt with before. He may have enjoyed some success in the lower leagues of, bless, of cursing, but he's never come up against Yahweh, the living God. He's never faced a people who are secure in God's blessing. How can I curse those whom God has not cursed. The second message develops this theme further. Verse 19 is a great memory verse, really. It's a great verse of assurance about the faithfulness of God. God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? 
See, with God, his word is his bond. He is the unchanging, unshakable, faithful, promise-keeping God. And so, verse 20, Balaam says, He has blessed, and I cannot change it. Verse 21, No misfortune is seen in Jacob, no misery observed in Israel. Verse 23, There is no divination against Jacob, no evil omens against Israel. It will now be said of Jacob and of Israel, See what God has done. Balaam realizes, I cannot possibly speak against this people. Pay me as much as you like. Sacrifice as many animals as you want. Make me the most powerful witch doctor in the world. There is no divination against them. Why? Second half of verse 21. The Lord their God is with them. The shout of the king is among them. God brought them up out of Egypt. They have the strength of a wild ox. What an encouragement to God's people. We don't know how this story came out, but it did come out. And what an encouragement for Israel. After 11 chapters and 40 years of rebellion and failure, to hear that God stands by his rock-solid determination to bless them, orchestrating events behind the scenes so that this pagan witch doctor working for a vindictive king brings nothing but a message of blessing to his people. There are a few times in the Bible when we get a glimpse behind enemy lines. Remember Joshua when he sends the spies into Jericho and receives the report back that the people of Jericho are trembling in their boots? That's a paraphrase. Or Gideon when he's about to attack the Midianites with only 300 men and he overhears the Midianite soldiers saying how terrified they are of the Israelite army. And so here we're, we're taken behind enemy lines and there's a great encouragement for us. You know, it's wonderful to hear God say directly to us, I am with you, I am for you, I will bless you. But there's also something really encouraging about learning that behind the scenes, unbeknown to us, God is working on our behalf, thwarting the evil intention of our enemies so that even their attempts to curse are turned to blessing. Our God is utterly faithful. He's made a promise to bless, and he cannot be stopped. He cannot be shifted. You can be the most powerful opponent to God. You will never be able to thwart God in his purpose, to rescue, to raise up a people for himself, and to pour out his blessing upon them. This is where we need to stand Build our lives on the faithfulness of God, the promises of God to us. Secondly, God is utterly faithful to richly bless his people. 23 verse 27, after the two failed attempts, you might think Balak, Balak would give up, but he doesn't have a plan B, so he tries again, has another roll of the dice. He takes Balaam to yet another location. Another load of animals are sacrificed. But 24 verse 1, it seems Balaam packs up his witchcraft. He realizes it's futile, that he's met a power that cannot be matched. 24 verse 1, now when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he didn't resort to divination as at other times. 
but turned his face toward the wilderness. When Balaam looked out and saw Israel encamped tribe by tribe, the Spirit of God came on him and he spoke his message. Balaam falls on his face in humble surrender. He says, now I see clearly, now I hear the words of God. And what follows is one of the most powerful statements of God's commitment to his people that you'll find. And it comes from a pagan witch doctor. Balaam sees here God's people as they truly are. It's as if he's, he's looking out on the tribes of Israel and God gives him a fresh lens in his binoculars so that he can see them as they truly are. And we've got to remember, on the surface, what, what does Israel look like? Well, they're dusty, weary, battle-worn people. They've been wandering for 40 years. They've experienced any number of setbacks, mostly due to their own failings. But Balaam sees them as they truly are, blessed beyond imagining, wealthy beyond belief, powerfully protected, enjoying the presence of God. So verse 5, How beautiful are your tents, Jacob, your dwelling places, Israel, like valleys they spread out which I think pictures lush, green valleys, a place of peace and rest, like gardens beside a river, gardens being supplied with uh, a flow of water, abundant provision, all, all that they dreamed of, melons and figs and pomegranates, grain and wine, like aloes planted by the Lord, plants with medicinal value, trees for healing, like cedars, the king of trees beside the waters, strong. Verse 7, water will flow from their buckets. Their seed will have abundant water. Probably speaks of ongoing fertility, a growing population. Though they're already too many to number, they're going to multiply even further. Their king will be greater than Agag. Their kingdom will be exalted. <laughs> These people currently living in tents are going to have a glorious kingdom. Verse 8, God brought them out of Egypt. They have the strength of a wild ox. They devour hostile nations and break their bones in pieces. With their arrows, they pierce them. No enemy will be able to stand against them. Verse 9, they're like a contented lion or lioness after a, a great meal. These verses speak of the rich blessing of God to his people. They speak of the people's future prosperity and security. Even as they are camped out in the desert plains of Moab, they are seen as blessed beyond imagining, wealthy beyond belief, powerfully protected by their gods. The message ends with an echo of God's promise to Abraham. May those who bless you be blessed and those who curse you be cursed. I think there's something really significant here in how God's people look on the surface, weary wanderers, and how God sees them richly blessed. One of the implications of this passage is to encourage us not to read off our circumstances to determine how God feels about us, but to let the truth of what God has revealed interpret our life circumstances. The reality, friends, is that God is for us. 
that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ, that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, that he is working in every circumstance of our life for our goods. John Newton, who, whose hymn Amazing Grace we sang, wrote in a letter to a friend reflecting on Israel's wandering in the wilderness and their hope of rest in the promised land. Uh, Newton imagines us in glory, looking back on our lives, and he says, we shall then see and acknowledge that mercy and goodness directed every step. As Psalm 23 says, Ach vahesed yedafuni kol yamei hayai. Surely, goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. I've shared before about my African friend in London, Chuku, who whenever he was asked, how are you, would respond, I'm blessed and highly favored. Now, it was a way of reminding himself, that, you know, there's a danger with that sort of thing that it can become an empty formula. But for Chuku, it was a way of reminding himself and whoever was asking him that this is the reality, that whatever he was facing, good day or bad, that he was one who enjoyed the blessing and favor of God. How good for us to remember the same, to get out of that victim mindset, to remind ourselves we're not victims, we're not hard done by, but God's beloved children, blessed and highly favored. God is utterly faithful to richly bless his people, thirdly, finally, through his conquering king. After the third message of blessing, Balak gets really angry and he says, verse 11, go home, I'm not paying you anything. You've not done what I asked you to do. Balaam says, I told you I could only say what God gave me to say. So fine, I'll go. But before I go, I've got a final message for you. And then without any sacrifices or anything, he delivers an extraordinary prophecy in his fourth message. How is it that God's going to achieve all this for his people? It's through his conquering king. Balaam looks into the far distance, verse 17, I see him now. Oh, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. In other words, a king will be born, a star, bringing light into the darkness. And he will carry the scepter of God's rule. And he will crush the enemies of God, including Moab, and will bring and will rule over every tribe and every nation. It's ironic that Balaam had been hired to help Moab defeat Israel, and yet he declares the reverse will be the case, that Moab will be defeated by a coming king of Israel. Now, this was all fulfilled in the first place by King David, but David points us forward to a greater king, a descendant of David who he calls my Lord, the one who will defeat all God's enemies and fulfill all God's promises. And so this image from Numbers 24 is picked up in the final chapter of the Bible 
in Revelation chapter 22. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. It speaks there of the final blessing of God's people in the new creation. Just listen to these words. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They'll see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. God is utterly faithful, unshakable in his determination to richly bless his people through his conquering king. These chapters give us a glimpse behind enemy lines, but even more than that, they pull back the curtain to reveal spiritual realities, to see that God stands with his face turned towards us, his face shining upon us, immovable in his determination to bless us and keep us, pouring out his grace upon us every step of our journey, bringing us safely to our promised land of the new creation where we will enjoy true and lasting peace. That's the reality. God is for us, graciously working for our good in every circumstance. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Trouble? Hardship? Persecution? No. There is nothing in all creation able to separate us from the love of God. In all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. God has been with us and for us in every circumstance of the last year. He will be with us and for us in every circumstance of the year to come. I want you to do something for me as we finish. Uh, you don't have to, but um, I encourage you to. Uh, turn to your neighbor and ask each other, how are you? And reply with these words, I am blessed and highly favored. All words to that effect. Okay? Turn to your neighbor. How are you? I am blessed and highly favored. Well done. And then believe it. Um, and now I, I want you to do something else and just imagine yourself, maybe close your eyes, imagine yourself in the situation in which you feel most hard done by. Maybe it's when you're tearing your hair out at home or you're feeling overlooked or mistreated at work or you're just experiencing the pain of grief or loneliness or unfulfilled desire, whatever it is, can you see yourself in that situation? 
And now I want you to say to yourself, not out loud, in your heart, you are blessed. God is with you. God is for you right here, right now. Now, doing all of that and, you know, following Chuku's example, um, when you're next asked by the shop clerk, you know, how are you? Um, it's not to deny the very real hardships that we face in life. And we want to be a community in which you can say, I'm really struggling, actually, and I can't see the goodness of God right now. But we also want to be a community in which we encourage each other to remember the truth of who God is, of his posture towards us, his heart for us, his work on our behalf. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Loving Father, we praise you for your constant, sure goodness towards us on our journey. We ask for your forgiveness for our grumbling hearts, so quick to forget the truth of what you've revealed, so quick to turn from you, to, to grumble against you and complain. Father, thank you that you are for us in all the circumstances of life, that your purposes are to bless us, that one day we'll be able to look back and see that goodness and mercy directed every step. Thank you that Christ is our all-conquering King who secures the victory for us, the one who lived for us and died for us, the one who rose for us and reigns for us the one who even now prays for us and who will one day return and bring us home. Father, thank you that nothing can separate us from your love. Please help us to be people who live by faith and not by sight, to believe what you say about us even when our experience seems to say something different. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.